Hey there, podcast listeners. This is Charles Chandler. This week we're up to episode number 42 in our podcast series, but we're dipping back into the archives once more. This one is actually a replay of one from June 24th of this year called Millennials and Work. Enjoy. Welcome to the Age of Organizational Effectiveness. This is the podcast that explores stories about organizations and their performance. I'm your host, Charles Chandler. Today we're into episode number 21, and today we're going to talk about the millennial mindset. And I have a special guest, uh, Lee Karhar, who's a CEO and acclaimed communication strategist known for her practical solutions to big problems. Lee has uh, written a book called Millennials and Management, The Essential Guide to Making It Work at Work. Lee's clients span well-known Bay Area brands, including Cliff Bar and Camelback, hot Silicon Valley startups, financial service companies, and wine and spirit companies. Lee is a graduate of Carleton College with a degree in medieval history, which she finds useful every day. She lives in San Francisco on the peninsula with her husband, two sons, and a blind cat named Al. I'm joined now by Lee Carher, who's the CEO of uh, Double Forte. Good morning, Charles. Thank you for having me. So you've, uh, you've written a, a book on millennials and management, the essential guide to making it work at work. Tell us a little bit about why you wanted to write this book. <laughs> well, I wrote this book out of um, desperation more than anything else. I had, um, and really out of my experience of... Um, epically failing at rec- retaining, uh, recruiting and retaining millennials into my business, and then uh, systematically going about tra- trying to figure out, you know, how to crack that code. And then we had put together at my company some uh, processes and philosophies that ended up being pretty successful for us. And the book is, um, is my effort to share what we've learned the hard way so people don't have to go through the drama that we went through in the process. I try to be as pragmatic as possible. When you're thinking about millennials, um, what was the first indication to you that they were a bit different? Well, um, our, the, my company, which is now 14 years old, um, when we started, we only hired people with 10 years of experience. And then after the economic disaster of 2008 and 2009, we decided to change our model and to hire young people. And the first person um, under 30 that we hired, uh, who's fantastic, she's just fantastic, her first day she brought her dog to work. And I was sort of flabbergasted. I was like, what's this dog doing here? And it wasn't just the dog. It was the kibble dispenser and the dog bed and everything. And I asked her manager, I said, uh, did anybody know she's bringing this dog? No. Did anybody, did she ask if she could bring the dog? No. Is anybody allergic to dogs? I don't know. Well, let's find that out first, you know. And um, it just flabbergasted me that this person, uh, again, who I said is fantastic, wouldn't have thought to ask the question. Well, the dog had a red vest, um, so is a service dog, but the dog is a chihuahua. And not what I considered, um, I've since been educated, a service dog. You know, service dogs to me were big dogs that could, you know, push you over if you were going to be in harm's way. 
And um, when I called some colleagues in the city, um, I said, this is just what happened. I mean, what? And they all were like, oh, my gosh, these millennials are so terrible. I Like, what's a millennial? I had no idea. And the negative feedback I got from people I talked to about this was just so overwhelming um, that I thought her bringing a dog to work was an anomaly. And they, people who had been working with millennials, thought it was the standard of just entitlement. And uh, that's when I knew there was going to be something different um, about the group. Um, in the end, we figured out how, to, you know, she was fantastic. We figured out how to work with her. And we're like, you really probably should ask about the dog first. And, and then about a year later, uh, coming out of the economic, you know, coming into recovery, we hired six millennials uh, within about two months of each other. And within three months, they were all gone. And I'd never had 100% failure um, with recruiting ever in my career. And one person could be their fault, but six people had to be us. So that's when I really understood that what we were doing, how we were managing, what our expectations were, were out of whack with what the millennial generation um, was expecting and was prepared for. Yeah. Just to be clear, the millennial generation is also called uh, Gen Y, I guess. And Correct. they were born 1980 to 2000, I believe. Yes. Right. That's how I use uh, Pew Research's um, data on that. So, yeah, Pew Research says to 1980 to 2000. And those first so few... So this year, they'd be 16 to 36 years old. Uh, those first few people that you lost out of that cohort, what did you attribute that to in the end? Um, a mismatch of expectations and realities. So our expectations of people who would be ready for the workplace and what we thought... Uh, make bad assumptions, basically, right? Mm -hmm. Bad assumptions. And then on the other side, uh, on the millennial side, um, we didn't understand how important uh, context was. Context is important for everybody, but it's vital for the millennial generation. And, you know, we were frustrated. They were frustrated. Some people left of their own volition. Other people we helped leave. And, it all comes down, it all came down for us to context, setting expectations, and communication. I believe you make the point in the book, there's kind of a millennial mindset. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about what are the components of the millennial mindset. How, how would you list them sure. out? Sure. You know, um, from my experience in my research, uh, talking to people who've done a lot of work on this, you know, millennial mindset is very much a, a one of uh, achievement and can do. I can do anything. I can make a difference. I will make a difference. And um, a lot of confidence, tons of confidence that may uh, be off-putting for older colleagues. Um, confidence that one and done is enough versus mastering a skill. And the other piece of that, the other mindset is that the world is a very flat place to millennials. Boomers, who this year are 52 to 69, 70, and Gen Xers, who are this year 37 to 51, you know, we're, we grew up in much, a much more hierarchical uh, situation in business and uh, in, in culture. Um, technology has really afforded millennials the ability, to, and everybody actually, the ability to reach anybody with an email or at least have access to those emails get your hands on any piece of information just with a, a few keystrokes um, and directly impact how companies work with a tweet or a Facebook post or a Snapchat or whatever. 
and this very direct um, impact and feedback mechanism, which technology has afforded all of us, millennials grew up with. So when they show up in the workplace, they are expecting the same kind of access and the same kind of fluidity that exists, has existed their whole lives, which is sometimes antithetical to the boomer, particularly the boomer experience. When they came through school, what, did you think, do you think the education system itself helped to set this mindset in motion, or, or how did they actually come to this? Oh, absolutely. I think, well, first you have to div- I divide millennials into three groups. The first group this year is 29 to 36, and this is the group that came into the workplace after 9-11. They, as adults, have never been to the gate to pick up a, you know, someone they were picking up at the airport, and they're used to giving their IDs to go into big buildings, and you know, their idea of, of uh, privacy and security is very different from Gen Xers or Boomers. Yeah, it's much, much more um, tight. Uh, the next set of millennials are 22, 23 to 29, and these people came into the workplace after 2008 and uh, into a very depressed economy in different parts of the country were more affected than others, but it was pretty universal in terms of impact, just a, a, a question of scale. And a lot of millennials in this, gen- this part of the generation are still waiting for work and compensation commensurate with their education. Uh, and then the last set of millennials is 16 to 22. These, these people are still in school. And the first set of millennials, the older set and the youngest set, you know, they have had school experiences, mo- many of them, just absolutely different from each other. For the first set, you know, iPads didn't exist. One-to-one computers was not the norm. Video didn't exist really as a, as a universal teaching tool. Today, um, people are doing homework in the classroom and watching videos at night. Uh, So, you know, the learning is upside down. The other piece of the equation on this is in the last 15 years, the average grade point average uh, in college and high school has risen almost a full point. So it is now possible to get a 4.6 on a 4.0 scale. Um, And this... Is a, has been a terrible disservice, I think, to uh, this generation. Um, so if you think about the last 15 years, that basically means the millennial generation, because uh, they were 21 when this is, start, you know, the oldest millennial was 21 when this trend started. Um, so the expectation of work product uh, ends up being sort of not uh, ready for prime time uh, based on, you know, they get into the workplace, they have a great, great point average, and their work is not ready. And uh, managers are stuck saying, good try, you need to finish. And, and there's a lot of dynamic. I hear this all over the country when I speak about this, that uh, the reaction is, yeah, it's good. And it's not good enough. It, it is too. And there, there's this big um, divide over what is good enough work and what is not. And my belief is that uh, the grade point average thing has not done anybody any uh, services on this. Yeah, so the education system has sort of inflated the grades. Part of this, I think, you attribute in the book to kind of the helicopter parents, uh, the uh, soccer moms and trophies for participation and and things like that. Uh, Speak to us a little bit about that side of it. I think that um, this generation also is a generation where um, everybody wins soccer was sort of a universal thing. And I think everybody wins soccer is wonderful up until about second grade. The problem is it hasn't gone away. Um, it, it, it exists all the way through college in terms of you know, badges for participation. 
And if you are not an elite athlete or an elite musician or an elite academician, so really up there in the top 1%, you are you probably have a lot of um, badges and trophies and medals for things that really were just about participation, not necessarily about actually achievement. And, you know, that sort of falls away once you get into the workplace. You don't just, you know, showing up is not a skill. Um, but by getting trophies for just being there, um, you're setting the expectation that if people show up on time, that they'll be rewarded. Um, and I think that that is, and I realize that that's a huge generalization, but is, this is what happens in the workplace. I'm, I'm here on time. Like, there's no medal for coming in on time. You're supposed to be here on time, right? right? Um, and I think helicopter parents, um, and I think some of, some of the issue on helicopter parents, you know, if they were latchkey kids themselves and they want to be more involved with their children's lives and their parents were involved, then maybe there's a, sw- you know, a, sw- a boomerang on that. But um, all over the country, people, adults are showing up with their parents to interviews. And I myself thought, you know, I've had calls from candidates' parents to my own small firm wondering if they could be involved with their children's, their adult children's interview process. And my answer is always no, they can't. But... um, the expect you know the parents that parents are involved is they're not doing them their kids any favors and my I'm not sure the adult children understand that their parents are doing something wrong or they're even doing something at all but um, you need to show up by yourself. I had a client who who had an um, employee who was his work was just a hundred percent on or a hundred percent off and we couldn't figure it out and and then one day we figured it out because he forwarded an email. You know, he passed on this email that was, he represented his own work, but it was actually a forward from his mother who had done his work for him. And this is a phenomenon we see all over the country in all different kinds of industry. It is not just, you know, technology firms or, you know, it's everywhere we see this. And where we came up with the idea that we could just keep doing our kids' work once they were out in the world, I'm not really sure what happened there. But it is a terrible disservice to your kids and to the economy in general. Yeah, no, that's that's sort of frightening. I hadn't hadn't heard that side of it before. But this this podcast is interested in management, and you mentioned earlier mm-hmm. the top down, the old model, uh, which the mm-hmm. boomers were familiar with, um, doesn't work all that great for millennials. No, and yet in the modern workplace, uh, there's a need for small teams and sort of. Um, uh, close to the customer, service delivery, things like that. It looks like there's an opportunity here in a way that the kind of um, uh, let's do it now millennial mentality and you know entrepreneurial um, what can we contribute sort of idea might work better in small teams without so much top-down um, you know, control. Mm-hmm. I think millennials have... Um you know, there. I think there's a myth that millennials are a me generation, um, and my experience is millennials are a we generation. They they are motivated by um, contributing to a team, to making a difference to a group who's making a difference in the world. And the fastest way you can demotivate or um, really un- make a millennial understand. Uh, that their work was not up to snuff is to say you let the team down. Uh, for Gen Xers, you might have said you didn't live up to your potential or, you know, your your contribution wasn't good enough, you know, blah, blah, blah. 
But if you say to most millennials, you let you you know you did a half half butt job and um, you let the team down. Wow, you're going to get it. It usually never happens again. Millennials, I think, understand leadership very differently than boomers. You know, boomers almost the same size generation as millennials, seventy eight million to eighty million. And we were, um, I'm a boomer, I'm the last year of boomers, and we're de- definitely much more of a wait-my-turn generation. If we just waited our turn, our opportunity would come. Millennials don't think this way. Again, they're the flat world. Um, and they believe, I think, that they, you can lead from any place in the boat. You don't just have to be the coxswain. You can lead from any position in the boat because, um, you know, my contribution is just important as somebody else's contribution. Um, so leadership happens from any place, not just out in front. And getting used to this dynamic in leadership and management in small or large teams is really about setting context and making sure that everybody understands the roles everybody has. Because someone has to be in charge. You know, my belief is high input, low democracy, no matter who's in charge. <laughs> and, um, but the high input part is super important uh, for millennials in terms of being able to contribute to the overall goal and the overall process. Um, and be heard, uh, even if by being heard, my ideas are not necessarily taken uh, into account, meaning they don't get applied. But being heard is super important. Well, you know, the old model of the very top-down management uh, tends to be a bit stodgy and hard to adjust to new things happening in the environment, um, whereas the close-to-the-action team, small team, that's sort of self-organizing and uh, close to the customer uh, seems to be the way forward. So there might be a, a good match between coming millennials as they, as they mature a bit and, uh, and the need to be more um, nimble-footed uh, out there in the marketplace. I think that's true. I think that, I'm, in general, you know, there's a place and a time for command and control, right? Yeah. There's a place and a time for command and control, in a crisis situation, in a fast-moving, if you're on a sprint situation, in the sprint team or something like that, um, you know, command and control is very useful. But it's very, you know, it, it should not be used universally all the time. Right. It's just out of step with a lot of things that are going on these days. Exactly. The other thing I see, and, and I'd like your view on this, the Internet has has sort of eliminated a lot of the middlemen, um, mm-hmm. both in, inside the firm, because uh, a lot of the middle managers were basically just passing information up and down uh, and sort of rating their employees and stuff. Um, so there's a much flatter organization these days. And because you have intranets, you know, with a lot of information on the web about the company and what's going on, you don't need all these middle managers in, in, in one sense. Plus, out in the out in the environment out in the real world um direct you know business to customer interaction also eliminates a lot of the the middlemen so well it's also very visible right i mean a lot of people are doing customer service on facebook or on twitter where the rest of the world can see it yes (laughs) you know it used to be customer service was just uh very private you made a phone call and they might be recording it but you weren't recording it and now uh, customer service is uh, sort of group sourced out there in the real world with people tweeting exact, you know, tweeting, you know, JetBlue changed its policy based on a, a tweet from a from the tarmac one day, you know, <laughs> so you sort of customer service out loud 
and uh, definitely flattening the and quickening, right, the response uh, that's required for a good customer experience around the clock. Well, let's see. We, we've covered a few things about uh, the millennials. What other areas um, jump out at you when you, uh, when you got into this book and were doing the research? I think um, what, really, what really jumped at me was how negative most of the narrative is about working with millennials and how diametrically posed my own experience is. I'm a millennial champion. I believe that the world is going to be a better place because of this generation. And um, I really do. And I have a lot of optimism um, about the world because this generation want, you know, is very, um, and again, it's a generality, but you know, they want to make a difference. They want to make a difference in their own job. They want to make a difference in their category. They want to make a difference. And you know, if we can get everyone get organized around making a difference, then great things are going to happen. The motivation around social investment, motivation around um, making sure that, uh, you know, I was talking to a young woman last night who, you know, just left a job because no one paid attention to her. Well, that's sort of bad, (laughs) you know, and if, and her boss, I talked to the boss too, and the boss was like, I just didn't have time. Well, we need to make time because if we don't make time, uh, making time for people is what's going to make us sustainable businesses. And I think that that is a, um, you know, if there's one thing we can learn is that it's sort of the yelping of the yelping of uh, business today makes open communication and sort of not hoarding power really, really important. When you look at, millennials in general, um, and you just drill down, do you see any difference, let's say, between male and female uh, ways of looking at the mm-hmm. world there? Or, let's say, any other uh, demographics, even even politi- yeah. political views? Well, I think um, this is the most diverse generation that we've had in terms of um, ethnicity and race across the country. And in general, uh, the millennial, the millennials in general have uh, been around people who don't look like them more than the Gen X or the boomers have. So um, having teams that have people who don't just look like you is much more normal for uh, millennials than it is for Gen Xers or boomers. And I think that lends itself to more understanding it is hard to have the conversation in the backdrop of this political, you know, this presidential run, which, you know, just has so much divisiveness on all sides, not, you know, all the way around. But I think in general, millennials are uh, more open to each other. And, uh, in, and the data shows that they're more progressive in terms of social, social norms. The male-female thing... Um, I would say that uh, men are more used to, men, men millennials are more used to seeing women in uh, leadership roles than their uh, boomer or exer um, colleagues. Although a good friend of mine just did some research around um, are millennials as, uh, more feminist than their, their parents? And the answer, particularly in science and technology, was no. They're, uh, and they use the term sexist. So we have a lot of work to do, I think, on some, in some categories. Um, but uh, we're moving in the right direction from my point of view on that. Yeah, I guess. And uh, I think polit- yeah, politically we see already, we see what's happening, you know, 
much more activism on the millennial in the millennial generation around topics, activist topics, which you know you see what's happening uh, today at the presidential level uh, in the in the in the two campaign in the two sides of the campaign. It'll be interesting to see. I, I think I, I heard yesterday that the Sanders campaign said, you know, coming out of their out of their campaign, you know, you know, something like two two or three thousand people have registered to run for office, um, which millennials have run uh, registered to run for office, which is the first time that's happened, at least on the Democratic side, in a long, long time. So we'll see. We'll see. Exactly. Um, you're out in uh, San Francisco area, I think, primarily, although today I think you're in New York. Yeah. When you look at the, um, let's say, the marketplace and the job opportunities in San Francisco, I guess you see a, a large chunk of those as being millennials and um, not, you know, the, the boomers are, are kind of retiring at this point. Well, um, boomers are working much longer than they thought they were going to work. I don't know very many boomers who are retired. I know a lot of traditionalists, so people who are over 70 that are retired. Um, more boomers think they're going to work into their 70s um, than any previous generation. And, um, and really, the economic downturn of 2008, 2009, the Great Recession, really had a huge impact on uh, sort of longevity of boomers in the workplace. And more and more are trying to, are, one, expected to be working much longer than they first anticipated, and two, aren't, don't necessarily have the, um, the financial means to retire as they once planned. So what we see is in the Silicon Valley, we see a lot of ageism where people, and particularly men, are having a hard time, over 55, are having, excuse me, a hard time finding work that they want. Um, and that's, you know, documented and well-researched. And that, I think, will create a bigger issue going forward um, if they don't, if they can't ha- uh, raise the resources they need to uh, go into the last 20 years of their lives. Um, so with the, there are more, probably more millennials being hired at startups than in other companies for sure than boomers or Gen Xers. But that has more, I think, to do with perception of um, perception and cost more than it does with ability. It's, I think uh, on the coast, so my office, I, my, my office is headquartered in San Francisco. We have offices in New York and Boston. And I see the same thing on the, on the coast. That, I mean, I see the same thing on the East Coast, uh, Boston and New York, that I do in San Francisco Bay Area in terms of, of that dynamic. Yes. And particularly against um, older men. Uh, older men have a harder time than older women do finding work. Yes. And I guess the millennials are a bit impatient about um, uh, these uh, boomers that are hanging on. Yeah, well, I think that's true. Um, you know, when in 2008, you know, millions of people thought they were going to be retiring in the next two years, 2008, 2009, 2010, and millions of people could not retire. So when, um, if people are hanging on to their jobs or taking jobs, um, you know, finding new ones at commensurate levels, of course, if they're staying in those jobs longer, that creates a compression where Gen Xers can't move up. And if Gen Xers can't move up, then where are the millennials going to go? And I think that the, um, which is an oversimplification of the situation, but, you know, the dynamics are very interesting. If you think about boomers being 78, 79 million, millennials being 80 million, Gen Xers being 45, 46 million people, 
um, those numbers should say that there's a tremendous amount of opportunity for Gen Xers, uh, Gen Xers, right? Those people who are 36 to 51. Uh, because boomers are staying in their jobs a longer, um, there isn't a whole lot of movement um, proportionally. At the same time, in the next five years, there will not be enough Gen Xers to hold those leadership positions because there's almost half. So Gen Xers are, you know, really need to get uh, used to the fact that they'll, their peers are going to be millennials because the only way to fill all that, those leadership positions is to bring millennials along with the Gen Xers to fill those positions. So the, that dynamic is changing rapidly. And age, which is what I, my point of my book is um, that it's not age-based, <laughs> That if we think about intergenerational conflict, uh, this is nothing new, right? And I start my book with a, um, a quote from Socrates, which is 400 BC. So this is nothing new, right? <laughs> right. But um, it's, you know, it's becoming more and more blended where people who are literally 50 years apart are sitting in the same companies uh, next to each other. And crea- it's creating a whole new dynamic that we, just, we need to get used to and sort of... Um, where can we share? Where can we be each other's mentors? Because um, a young person can teach an older person just as many things as an older person can teach a young person today. It just looks very different than it used to. Yes, it does. Just to be clear on, on one point you made about the downturn in 2008, uh, here we're talking about the downturn in the housing market and the stock market mm-hmm. and, and the fact that yep. um, people were not able to make as much on their investments uh, uh, coming out of that, and that's still somewhat the case. Um, People are so, still reeling from that. You know, if you lost, I mean, hundreds of thousands, of, millions of people lost, you know, 40, 50, 60% of their retirement funds. Right. Well, when you're 50 or 60, when you're 60 years old, losing 40% is devastating. You know, I was 44, I guess, and um, it hurt bad, right? I've lost half my income four times in my career. Well, when I was 21, it didn't matter. I had 50 cents. When I was 44, it mattered a lot. <laughs> yeah. But if I was, I mean, thank God I wasn't 64 because how do you make that up? Mm. You know, how do you make that up in a depressed uh, environment? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're almost out of time. Uh, is, is there something else you'd like to leave with us uh, as we uh, think a little bit more about millennials and management going forward? Sure. I think that the the thing I'd like to leave everybody with is, you know, there's a lot we can learn from all the generations. Um, if you don't have a mentee, uh, if you're a boomer and you don't have a mentee, go get one, right? Or um, go get one. And the first thing I would have you do with that um, that younger person is to trade reading lists, you know, um, for a month. Have um, your mentee read what you read every morning and read what that p- person reads every morning. And you will have a much better understanding of each other because our, our, the things that inform us are so different by the generation. And if we can be informed by what, uh, by other things, we will be much more attuned and better uh, ready to work with each other in the workplace. Yeah. Well, those are good words. Well, thanks very much for being with us today, uh, Lee. It's been a great pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, that's about it for this week. Join us again next week when we'll again hear stories about organizations and their performance. In the meantime, you can access all of our podcasts at our website, ageofoe.com. That's all for now. So long.